Hey, greetings everyone, Lieutenant Colonel Allen West, and welcome to Steadfast and Loyal. Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Steadfast and Loyal. There's a lot going on up in Capitol Hill. As you know, I was there last week talking to some members of Congress about the National Defense Authorization Act, and we're joined by one of those members of Congress. Congressman and Dr. Rich McCormick is a decorated veteran and emergency room physician who proudly serves Georgia's 6th Congressional District in the United States House of Representatives. During his two, dec two decades of service, Congress Congressman McCormick deployed to several combat zones as a Marine Corps combat helicopter pilot the Africa, Persian Gulf, and Afghanistan. Between deployments, the congressman earned his Master's of Business Administration from National University and a medical degree from Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. In Congress, Congressman McCormick sits on the Armed Services Committee, Foreign Affairs Committee, Science, Space, and Technology Committee, as well as a select subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic. And we're joined now with Congressman Rich McCormick, Dr. McCormick, United States Marine Corps McCormick, Navy Commander, Doctor. I mean, how many titles do you have, sir? <laughs> and I was told as a young lad that titles don't matter. Uh, it's it's kind of like being a black belt. If you can't uh, lay it down, then it doesn't really matter what your title is. And, and same thing with being a doctor. A lot of doctors out there that if you don't practice the caring medicine they're supposed to, and same thing with congressmen. You may be a congressman and not get anything done. So hopefully I'm uh, used by God with special utility. You're absolutely right. And one of the things that I admire, one of the things that I wanted to do uh, when I was in Congress, there was to get more military veterans up there serving in Congress, those men and women that understood their oath to the Constitution. What has it been like for you to be up there in Congress? I mean, coming from the Marine Corps, coming from the Navy with a background in the medical field, what has it been like for you uh, serving your constituents there in the 6th Congressional District of Georgia? Well, first of all, thank you, because you're you're absolutely been leading the way uh, through Guardian Fund and other ways uh, of getting military people into uh, Congress, getting minorities, getting women, uh, leading the way in this diverse movement of representation in the Republican Party that I think is very healthy. Uh, I think veterans, if nothing else, we've done one thing in our life where it wasn't about us. It was about this great country of ours, and hopefully that continues in the Congress, that same mentality. Uh, I really have enjoyed constituent services better than anything, because that's one thing we can do control you know otherwise you're one vote out of 435 you can rely on relationships good legislative efforts uh and a lot of convincing to try to get bills passed but ultimately constituent service is the one thing you get to actually directly affect making sure the attitude of your staff is, is receptive that you're hardworking, that you're timely uh those things really matter to me and then listening to people uh it's funny everybody thinks that they are the people i'm supposed to represent and yes they are along with 775,000 other people in my mm -hmm. district who have a variety of, of opinions 
on everything from uh, our war, uh, our, our war efforts in Ukraine to uh, transgenderism to abortion to gun rights to every controversial topic there is out there. And uh, it's really important to try to be as educated as possible. The thing that surprised me the most, and, and I could see this is probably something that you, you sound the primary system where it gets really nasty <clears throat> against uh, between people who are supposed to think very similarly. But when you're in Congress, the thing that surprised me the most is how many people get stuck on talking points rather than digging deep and, and becoming educated, learning about the details uh, of, of what we're arguing and why and what's constitutional and what made this great republic what it is and, and trying to explain that, break it down to people in ways that they can really uh, understand and digest. Uh, some people are much better at it than others. That's why we win elections and we lose elections is uh, there's a distinct difference between people who are framing the conversation and who we're bringing to the table or, or to the church, if you will. You know, I agree with you wholeheartedly in that when we stand on the rule of law, the Constitution, it should be a very simple argument against those that don't. And that kind of brings me to where I want to start our conversation. I was up there sitting, meeting with you last week with the National Defense Authorization Act. And, of course, that uh, was passed there in the United States House of Representatives. But it was 219 to 210. And normally the NDAA is a real strong bipartisan uh, piece of legislation. Why is it now that the progressive socialist left is more so concerned about their woke agenda in the military than our actual military readiness, which is what the Authorization Act is authorizing the missions uh, and the focus of our military? What is it that the, the other side of the aisle up there right now is not understanding and not getting? Well, I think they're, they're missing the whole point of the military to begin with. And, and this override, how it's just a religious freedom um, uh, hearing where, where the whole focus of one member of Congress was, what about the LGBTQ, whatever it's called, um, in religion being the religion discriminating against them? I'm like, wow, we, we kind of the, the whole rewrite of history and what the military is even for, um, as if we're a social experiment. Um, one thing that I noticed is this has been going on since the Obama era, where mm -hmm. you started to replace warriors like yourself with politicians. Um, who are more interested in making politicians happy than accomplishing the mission. Uh, similar to the Army, the Marines' uh, whole mission is to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy through fire and maneuver, or to repel the enemy's assault through fire and close combat. Everything else is superfluous. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you this focus, even the last year when I was in the military, 2017, when Trump was president, mind you, Trump was president, I had four lectures on how to treat somebody who's transgender. I'm not talking about as a patient. I'm talking about as a person. We didn't even have transgenders in the military. So tell me that wasn't absolutely a political way to get young people to think in a certain way rather than to actually accomplish the mission. Four lectures. Are you kidding me? Um, I pushed back on it hard because I don't care. I'm at the end of my career. But nobody else felt like they were empowered to do that. And only the people who are going to support that agenda are going to get promoted the fastest to the next level and control the military. So you, it's a natural selection process towards a politically correct military. And, and I remember, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, when I was talking to the Sergeant Major of the Army, and uh, not to pick on the Army too much, uh, but the Sergeant Major, <laughs> by the way, of the Army owes me 100 push-ups because he's not going to make his recruiting uh, goals this year. Yeah. And he said, we're going to change things, we're going to get it back on track. But once again, this, this idea that you're trying to recruit somebody other than warriors, 
first of all, you want warriors in the military. You want people who really want to do, to protect their nation, will fight tooth and nail to the death to accomplish a mission. Those who, that's what you want. Diversity aside, we're going to get diverse. We, we focus on that already in the military. Decades ago, we were focusing on the military, recruiting minorities to be officers so it could represent better what they're, what they're leading. And I think that's a good thing. I support that. And we, we even biased it towards that in some ways, which is okay. I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not against diversity in the military. But what I'm against is teaching people that we are divided by those differences. Um, that's where I draw a line, where it becomes a divisive tool used by the government to, to conflate the issue, issue in, a, in a very unhealthy way. And, and this is where we, we've gone totally wrong. And this is where they will fight tooth and nail to the end because it's, it's their civil rights movement. And they think that they're going to get in on, on the, the march and sell them. Uh, that, that somehow this is the same representation as if people are spraying down LGBTQ uh, with fire hoses and sticking dogs on. It's not the same thing because you were told you that, that somebody wouldn't make a birthday cake for you. It's not the same thing. We're not equally uh, discriminated against. Not in this country, not in other countries. And this idea that everybody's a victim is what they're fighting over. And they've literally victimized every child in America to the point where some some cities, some communities, you have 40% of the community saying, I too am a lesbian or transgender or gay or whatever. That's impossible. It's not statistically possible. It's just they don't want to be chastised for being normal. Yeah. And this is, this is the movement that they wanted. This is where they wanted to put government in the position where they are the moral equivalent of God or a church or a family. The total opposite of what we designed our constitution around, which is empowering people to be the only moral equivalent of themselves. The ultimate minority is the individual. And now we've taken this over to the military, the one last meritocracy we had where people got along because we had a common enemy and where the only thing that mattered is, does Colonel West carry his pack and shoot straight? Does he got my back? Is he loyal to me? Is he my, my guy? That's what mattered to us in the past. We didn't see things in, in terms of black and white. We saw the shades of green. We all bleed red. That was the military that's being destroyed on purpose, in my opinion. No, you're absolutely right. And this whole movement, the LGBTQIA alphabet soup mafia, that's what I call them. It has become the religion of the left. And if you don't prostate yourself before them, you're persecuted and prosecuted. Now, I will tell you something else you can call up the sergeant major of the army about and, and get some more push-ups out of him. It was just last week, I believe, that Christine Warmoth, the secretary of the army, you know, talking about recruiting, she says that she does not want to recruit from generational families of service anymore. She wants mm -hmm. to recruit, you know, other people to come into the military. To me, that's a slap in the face of multi-generational families that have served this country, like mine. Uh, I mean, it started with my dad in World War II, continues up to today with my nephew, who's a lieutenant colonel. Why do you think that we have this incredible push of the left. I mean, when you have the chief of naval operations, because you just quoted the, the basic mission of the United States Marine Corps, but when the chief of the naval operations says they don't have enough amphibious assault craft to get the Marines to the battlefield, then you can't meet your mission. But yet, pronoun usage and drag queen shows and drag queen recruiters and, and all of this stuff is the emphasis. And they're upset because you and the House of Representatives realize we're not supposed to be funding this with taxpayer money. Can we continue to hold the line 
no matter what the Senate does, and this comes back to a conference uh, committee there in the House? That's the big question. And let's, let's be frank. As a doctor, as a military member that you and I have been in, in the frank realities of the, the man's of the military, both mentally and physically, we still don't allow people in the military with flat feet. Why? Because that's they'll right. have a propensity to have foot problems when they hike. And that's for all Marines. Doesn't matter what MOS. How ironic is it that we're accepting people in the military that have a 40% chance of trying to commit suicide, throw them in the highest intensity situations with the most stress, and then assume that they're going to transition while they're in the military, which would be extremely expensive and non-deployable for their entire career so that some other Marine deploys in their stead overseas. So now you have a higher pressure on those people and their family to take over for what we determined was better and safer than flat feet. How ironic is that? Now, to get back to the Sergeant Major of the Army, I, I forgot to finish the story, which is typical of an ER doc. I'm off to the next thing. But... But here's what he said. And I said, why are you guys spending so much time on this, this diversity training when we know we're diverse? We, matter of fact, one of the things we, we love about it is we, we make fun of each other. We cut it up like good friends do. Mm -hmm. we, we break down those barriers because we feel comfortable. When you heighten that anticipation of if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to ruin my career or I'm going to be hated by this person because now they absolutely think I hate them and I can't joke with them anymore. I'm not comfortable with them. And we create barriers instead of, bringing them down before we, we got rid of the barriers by just cutting it up and wrestling and being goofballs and knuckleheads. Now we're afraid to make a mistake because of this diversity training that's, that's literally saying you're different from them and he's trying to hold you back because he doesn't like the way you look. What in the world are we doing? And when I brought this up to Sergeant Major, his, his, his defense was, look, we have Marines from 8th and I. They're driving home in their uniforms because they're afraid they're going to be pulled over because they're black. I said, good point. Question is, are they military police pulling them over? Nope, they're not. It's a societal problem, not a military problem. Yeah. Why are you making society's problems the military problem? We got it kind of figured out. Follow our lead. Don't do it the way the society's effed it all up. Sorry for my language. But, okay. but quite, quite frankly, the military has it right. We've led the way in breaking down barriers. We've led the way in diversity. We've led the way in mission accomplishment. Why are we trying to go back to society and reinforce the divisions that have held us back for, for decades or centuries, or whatever you want to say? We're rehashing things that divide us instead of the things that unite us. It's like using the flag to represent all the bad things in the United States rather than all the good things in the United States. Give us a standard. Give us something to believe in that can unite us instead of using everything we have to unite us against us and, and using it literally in divisive ways that gives us nothing left to unite us. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because the 8th and I barracks that you're talking about, uh, the United States Marine Corps headquarters there in D.C., is located in a pretty bad neighborhood. And, and my little hooch was there up in that neighborhood. And you're right. It is a societal cultural problem in Washington, D.C., with the crime that's being committed and turning a black eye on the perpetrators of crime and not confronting that. And sadly, we have soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines all caught up into that. But let's transition over to another part. You're also on the Foreign Affairs Committee. You just recently had one of your colleagues, and I use that word in air quotes and loosely, uh, Representative Jayapal, who is the chairperson of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, basically the Communist Caucus, um, Come out and say, you know, this past week, Israel is a racist country. And we know that the president of Israel is now visiting Washington, D.C. 
are we going to see some type of you know response to her? Something that happens on the uh, the House floor, some censure measure against her because that undermines the foreign policy of the United States of America. I give it to you. And this is why we kicked Ilhar Oman off of the committee. Uh, you know, when when you have problems, people talking like that uh, is never conducive to to what we're trying to accomplish in the world. Ironically. They're the same exact people that would call America racist. Does that mean that Joe Biden can't go visit a foreign country? Let's think about that for a second. They have openly been uh, calling America a despicable country, even to our own, their own constituents. And, and yet, uh, does that mean that we're no longer, once again, focusing on the worst of us rather than on the best of us? And if you're going to judge every nation by the worst of us, we're all in trouble. And the question is, what will we do? That'll be interesting to see what we, we would determine on the next conference. We're actually a little more strict on that sort of rhetoric. Um, I do think that there's a very unhealthy push uh, that, that leaders in general are judged by uh, a small portion of their, their populace, including the United States um, and including our party sometimes. You know, it's interesting because uh, herself and several others have already said they're not attending the joint session of Congress when the Israeli president will be speaking. And I think that is a horrible reflection because you always hear the left talk about threats to democracy. There's only one democracy in the, in the Middle East, and that is the state of Israel. And yet they're speaking out against that state and aligning themselves with the types of folks that you and I fought against, Islamic jihadists and terrorists and things of this nature. So now let's talk about your select subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic. Um, the American people were terrorized. Will we ever get to the bottom of this as far as who's responsible and, you know, to make retributions of this? And also, I think one of the things we need to look at, can we get to a point where those members of the military who were kicked out because they refused to take a shot, which we now know would not have had any positive effect. As a matter of fact, it had more adverse effects. Can we get them to come back into the military? Can we make that offer to them and bring them back at the same rank and uh, also with back pay? Yes. So we're, we're actually, we've, we've actually passed legislation. I don't know if it's going to be passed by Senate and the White House. That's another issue. We've done our part. Uh, what's, what's interesting about that, and, and if I may just talk, my last ER shift was December 28th. Uh, I did an overnight shift. I've been working pretty much uh, three-quarters time during my entire uh, race into the general. Uh, I'm the only person in Congress who, who've not just treated coronavirus patients, but thousands and thousands of coronavirus patients. So I happen to be scientific in the way I approach this. Uh, I think we absolutely have um, the idea of where this came from, and it's without a doubt, Wuhan. We know that's the epicenter, and that's the, where it started. We know that it did not come from animals. There is no animal reservoir. They can't find it. They can find DNA in the in the area, that doesn't mean anything. You can find you can find the RNA DNA. You can find coronaviruses on a, on a wood table. That doesn't mean it came from wood table. Let's be serious about this. You don't find antibodies or reservoirs in in raccoon dogs or civet cats or bats, despite Herculean efforts by the Chinese government to come up with some sort of animal reservoir. Therefore, if it does not exist, it's not even a good theory. Anybody who clings to that is literally trying to cover up the truth. We do know that the Wuhan uh, lab requested funding for gain of research in the very area that this virus developed and that it started in the Wuhan, Wuhan area and, and that it happened right after 
they requested that funding. Then they destroyed a bunch of evidence, wouldn't allow any access by any outside organization, and people disappeared. Deductive reasoning isn't even, isn't even in question here. It's obvious where it came from. The question is, do we have the fortitude to call it out? Now, the next question we have when it comes to the coronavirus, and this is what we're going to get to next, is what about all the censorship? The censorship of physicians, of, of opposite, opposite physicians, as you said, that turned out to be right. What about when I asked a, a quote-unquote uh, expert in the field who, who hasn't seen a patient since the 1990s, but yet had the power to, along with the government and the illegal, in my opinion, relationship what they had with the media, social media and other news agencies, to censor an ER doctor seeing thousands of patients saying, I'm wrong, and then it turns out, I'm right. What do you know? The science came back and says, shows that I'm right on masks, on vaccinations, on treatments, on a multitude of things, but no apology. Instead, their excuse was, well, we didn't know at the time that you were, that you were right. So why did you censor me yeah. when you turned out to be wrong? The, the, worried thing, the worrisome thing is we literally used a very scary time, and this is where fear gets very, very dangerous, to justify government determining if our businesses were open or closed, whether you could travel, whether you had to have a vaccination, whether you could um, even be heard on media and post what you wanted to post, or how you treat medicine. So they became the, the moral equivalent of all doctors where they required you to think like they do. And this is, by the way, the same reason that medical pediatricians who used to universally be against transgender uh, transitions as, pedi uh, as pediatric patients now won't say anything because they're scared of the government. This, this idea that the government becomes all powerful is what led to um, the, the death of 60 million Russians during the Gulag Archipelago from 1917 to 1957. I know you're a student. I know you're a huge historian, which I love about you. You're very well read. Uh, big fan. Uh, but, you know, this is when government becomes all powerful and they decide you shouldn't have a gun. But 30 million Americans aren't willing to give up their God given right and also the, the constitutional rights. Then what does the government have to do? It has to, by force, take it from you. Are you willing to kill 30 million people who won't give up their right? See, this is that creep of government power that we have literally designed our constitution around to, to prevent. And yet it's now being attacked from all sides. Last question before I let you go, because I know you're busy up there on Capitol Hill. And one, the, the only thing that is mandated for the Congress to do uh, is to pass a budget. And in order to pass a budget, that means 12 appropriations bills that have to be passed out of the House, sent over to the Senate. All of this has to be done, work wrapped up by the 30th of September, the end of the fiscal year. Or else we go in and get another one of these omnibus spending gumbos and continuing resolutions and whatever. As you sit here right now, do you think that this House of Representatives will be able to get done the one mandated thing they must do is to pass a budget, pass 12 appropriations bills for 2024? Yeah, if any Congress can do it, we can. Uh, consider what we got done with the narrowest majority we've had in a long time. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that we've been able to bring everybody to the table, get everybody's input, um, pass some bills that are hard to do, especially like the NDAA, even though we, we had opposition. Uh, we, we've relied on some moderates from the Democrats, but overall it's been really a, a universal push by the Republicans to get a lot of bills passed. One of the most active Congresses in recent history uh, with some of the most conservative legislation in recent history, and we've all done it with this very minor um, majority. 
And, and I think it's, it's just showing how much we can pull together when we want to. Uh, we've been very proactive, very, very forward thinking. We're, we're not taking our time. You know, if we would have taken our time on the NDAA, then the Senate would have had a chance to, to come up with their first hack, and then we'd be playing defense. We would have got a much less conservative bill. Yeah. The fact that we've had committees working and people come to the table allows us to get ahead of this. And I like to say, we, I think we have a fighting chance of actually, for the first time in a very long time, doing it the right way. Well, I pray so. Congressman Dr. Rich McCormick of Georgia's 6th Congressional District, how can people follow you? How can people support you? Uh, let us know all of your social media and, you know, where can people stay in touch? So you can find all that at McCormick.house.gov. Uh, great resource tells all the links for both campaign side and official side. Lots of links about how we talk about these sort of issues and more. Uh, and maybe in a few videos about uh, Marines being knuckleheads in, the, in their congressional office. Well, I wish you, as they say in the uh, maritime services, fair winds and following seas. And I also want to tell you, bravo Zulu. Proud of you. Proud of all that you're doing up there. And, you know, with men and women such as yourself, the better days of this great constitutional republic are ahead of us. Thank you for your service in uniform and out of uniform. Simplify, steadfast and loyal. Lead the way. Simplify. Cool. Airborne. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much for joining us on this episode of Steadfast and Loyal. A special thanks to my dear friend, Congressman Rich McCormick from Georgia. And also, if you like this show, please click that like button, share it with others. And until next time, steadfast and loyal. Before they burn it down.